Good morning. This is the second to last sermon in our series through the book of Philippians, which we have been calling Invincible Joy. And my question for you this morning is this. How is your joy? How's your contentment in life? Think specifically right now. How's your contentment in your marriage or in your singleness? How's your contentment in your job or in your finances? How's your contentment in your current status in life, your current successes or failures? Or maybe think of it this way. How have you been finishing this thought in your own mind lately? If only dot, 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 or as soon as fill in the blank. If only this was different, if only so-and-so would do thus and such, or as soon as this happens or that changes or this comes or that goes away, then I'll be living. Then I can take it easy. Then I can feel some joy or relief. What are your if only or as soon as thoughts in your own mind this morning? Let's take a close look at Philippians 4, 10 through 13 to see what God has to say to us about the nature of true contentment and invincible joy that is available to us in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in verse 10, Philippians chapter 4, this is the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You assert your ruling and reigning and saving power through your word. Your word is your scepter. Your word goes forth and accomplishes what you purpose. And so we pray that you would Make our hearts receptive, that we would hear and receive your word with faith, that we would hold fast to your word, and that we would bear fruit with patience so that you would be glorified and so that our joy in you would be full. In Jesus' name, amen. My aim this morning is to show you how you can live all of life. All of life's joys and sorrows, highs and lows, triumphs and tragedies, all of life by the very strength of Jesus Christ so that your joy will be invincible and not circumstantial. This is how I would sum up God's word to you this morning through Philippians 4, 10 through 13 in a single sentence. You can learn to live with invincible joy in every situation By relying on the power of Christ, you can learn to live with 
real joy, not imagined joy, real invincible joy in every real life situation by relying on the very real and present help and power and grace of Christ Jesus. I'm going to break that into three parts. First of all, you can learn to live with invincible joy. There's actually a secret that's not so secret, but there is something you must know in order to live life with contentment and joy. Look what Paul says in this paragraph. I have learned to be content. I've learned. Paul has learned something. He says, I know how two times I know how to be brought low I know how to abound he knows something then he says it again I have learned the secret of facing any and every circumstance and finally he says I can do all things so there's a connection between knowing and doing Paul knows something he's rightly informed in his mind by the word of God in order to face all of life's situations. And the good news for you is that this is not for a few spiritual elite. This is God's kind intention for you. Paul just said at the end of chapter 3, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul holds out his own life, his manner of life, his way of being as an example and calls believers to imitate him. So This is part of that example. Philippians 4, 9, just a few verses prior to our paragraph here. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So in this section, Paul's larger purpose is to thank the Philippians for their generous support. In fact, that's his primary reason for writing the letter to the Philippians, to thank them for a generous material gift that they sent to him through Epaphroditus while he was in prison. That's his purpose here. But in this paragraph, his immediate focus is actually to present a theology of Christian contentment and material possessions. And he does that by interrupting his expression of gratitude with two qualifiers, which at first sound like he's not actually so thankful. They, they might strike us as a little bit weird at first. The first qualifier he gives, he says, uh, not that you didn't care, but he, he says, finally, you have revived your concern for me. Finally, you have at long last re- revived your concern for me. In other words, it almost sounds like he's saying, thanks for the gift. What took you so long? We'll come back to that a little bit later. The other qualifier he gives is he says, not that I am speaking about being in need. Verse 11. So. Again, that sounds kind of strange to our ears. Thank you for the gift. Not that I needed it. What took you so long? And not that I needed it. So Paul thanks them for this material support, but he wants them to know that his ultimate hope and joy is not material abundance. To be clear, Paul is incredibly grateful. He tells them, I rejoiced greatly when I received this gift. He is Thankful, He is grateful, but he wants to make it clear to the Philippians that his ultimate joy comes from Christ and not from the amount of material possessions that he has. This is crucial because Paul just told these Philippian believers to rejoice in the Lord always and to be anxious about nothing. And he's about to promise them in a few verses, my God will supply all your needs according to 
his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We know that the Philippian church was full of people who experienced extreme poverty and severe affliction, according to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. So it might be easy for believers living in Philippi to know that they had just sent a gift to Paul and to think easy for you to say rejoice in the Lord always. Things are a little bit better for you now. But Paul wants to hold himself out as an example for the Philippians and for us to show that true contentment, true joy, invincible joy comes from Christ and not from material possessions. You see, by God's design, you and I live in a material universe. Matter. And and we are living in this material universe as embodied souls, souls with bodies, physical bodies, and we have physical needs. But the thing is, apart from God, sinful human beings can't figure out how to live in God's created world with God's created gifts. One Christian rapper speaking uh, from the perspective of the serpent in the garden tempting Eve questioning the goodness of God, puts it like this. He says, that's evil, like creating Cookie Monster with diabetes then watching him try to complete an impossible fast from sweets, but then dropping him into a street filled with chocolate cookies and cream. God made us with physical needs, put us in a physical world, and in rebellion and sin, man can't figure out how to live here. So there are all of these philosophies that arise trying to figure out what do I need to know in order to live in this world? One of those philosophies, one that Paul would have been familiar with, he encountered it in Acts 17, is stoicism. Paul says here in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content. That word translated content is a Greek word that was a favorite word of the stoic philosophers. One author writing about this word says, this was one of the great Stoic words, the very basis of the Stoic creed. It describes the person who is entirely self-sufficient, who cannot be moved or affected by anything outside the self. The Stoic's aim was to teach himself not to care. Begin with a broken cup, says Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher. Go on to a torn robe or garment, And then the death of a pet animal. Teach yourself to say, in response to all of these things, I don't care. Everything, said the Stoic, joy or sorrow, laughter or tears, accept it all and say, I don't care. In other words, you can make yourself self-sufficient by killing love. The Stoics made a desert in the heart and they called it peace. So that's one way fallen man has tried to figure out how to live in God's material world. But another approach is materialism. The idea that I do need material things in order to be happy. Therefore, the meaning of my life, the very purpose of life is to acquire as much stuff as possible in order to secure my own joy and contentment. Or another philosophy, Gnosticism, a false teaching that threatened the early church for the first Three centuries. Gnosticism is this idea that matter is inherently evil while the spiritual side is inherently good. And that idea still exists in so many Christians today. 
that the material world is bad. It's all just going to burn up anyway. Who cares about this? The spiritual realm is all that is really real, all that actually matters. But the problem with all of these approaches to living in God's made world is that they're all focused on material possessions. And so joy is always circumstantial. You see, materialism and minimalism are actually saying the same thing. Your happiness depends on how much stuff you have. One says you need lots of stuff. One says you need nothing. But still, both are saying your joy depends on how much stuff you have, whether a lot or a little. And circumstantial joy is flimsy. It's high maintenance. It's idolatrous. It's blasphemous. It's, it's flimsy because the slightest change in circumstances can destroy your joy. It's, it's high maintenance because you demand massive amounts of attention from God and from others. Everything has to be just so in order for you to be full of joy. It's idolatrous because when your joy waxes and wanes in response to your wealth or your health or your relationships, you show that someone or something other than God is your greatest treasure. And it's blasphemous because when your circumstances ruin your joy, you tend to speak evil against God. But Paul is holding himself out here as an example of an entirely different way, a gospel way. It's not the middle ground between materialism and minimalism. It's completely different. God has spoken So that you can know how to live rightly in his world. And Paul is offering himself as an example to prove that joy and contentment do not depend on circumstances or on the quantity of possessions. But gospel joy, invincible joy is not circumstantial joy. Unlike stoicism, which seeks to be indifferent to pleasure and pain, Christians are strengthened by Jesus Christ himself to rejoice Always, as Paul says, there's a difference between stoic indifference to God's good gifts and Christian rejoicing in all of God's gifts, the pleasant ones and the painful ones. The Stoics aimed to feel nothing in response to external circumstances, while Paul aimed to rejoice in the Lord always. Gospel contentment is invincible joy. And the good news offered to you in Philippians 4, 10 through 13 is that like Paul, you can learn to live this way. Second part of our sentence, you can learn to live with invincible joy in every situation. Christ sustains invincible joy in every imaginable situation and every unimaginable situation. Look at, again, the repeated theme in this paragraph. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 11. He says in verse 10, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. Those are two extremes. And Paul means those two extremes and everything in between. He says, in any and every circumstance, that's total, all-inclusive. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Again, extremes, meaning these two sides of the spectrum and everything in between. And finally, he ends it by saying, I can do all things. Now, that statement needs to be clarified. 
I can do all things does not mean I can do whatever I dream. Paul says, I can do all things, but he just said in verse 10 to the Philippians that they had no opportunity to demonstrate their concern for Paul for a time. So obviously he doesn't mean whatever you can think up, you can do. Whatever you dream of, you can do. That way of thinking is not what Paul is teaching here. Philippians 4.13 may be one of the most misquoted, misapplied verses in the Bible. It's a, it's a favorite of athletes. And it ends up meaning something like, I can dunk a basketball if I set my mind to it. I can run a mile under four minutes if I really want to. I can hit a hole in one before I die. Steph Curry has 413, I believe, on some of his shoes and his shirts through Under Armour have the the text, I can do all things on it. Some Christians are excited to see a Bible verse on shirts made by Under Armour. I don't know. He He left Christ off of the shirt. So I'm not sure how Christian that statement is divorced from Jesus Christ. I can do all things means that you will never be in any situation where you can't exalt Christ and love your neighbor. Let me say that again. I can do all things means you will never be in any situation where you can't exalt Christ and love your neighbor. So there's there's a double negative there. Let me say it positively. You will always be able to exalt Christ and love your neighbor in whatever situation you find yourself. Look at this promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13. The context is important here. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is pointing back to the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, all of their exodus experiences God is bringing them toward the promised land and Paul says these things that happened to them have been written down for our instruction and so before he gets to verse 13 he is warning Christians to learn from the negative example of the Israelites in the wilderness who grumbled and complained against God when their circumstances were less than what they had hoped for but when he gets to verse 13 he says this no temptation and and the word translated temptation there Temptation has such a, a negative, sinful connotation in our mind, but the word translated there could also be translated trial. The, wor- the word is actually morally neutral, but it's certainly a temptation. A situation is a temptation if you respond to it sinfully. But if you respond to it in God-honoring, God-glorifying ways, then, then it's not a temptation, it's a, it's a test. And so Paul says here, no, no temptation or trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted or tried beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may may be able to endure it. That is, endure it without sinning against God. That's the kind of language Paul's using in Philippians 4. I can endure any situation. I can face abundance and need. Plenty and and hunger. I can face those things. I can do those things. I can endure those things without sinning against God. In every situation, God always provides a way for me to endure it without sinning against him. Plenty and hunger, abundance and need. All of our situations in life, in this material world, we need to get this. They can expose sin. Riches. Listen to how Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane say this in their book, How People Change 
how people change. Riches can be as much a trial as poverty. Losing a job or getting a promotion. Being rejected or receiving the praise of others. Failure or success. Physical illness or perfect health. Each is a form of trial. Both present opportunities for temptation and sin. As well as testing and growth. It depends on your response, which comes from your heart, not from your circumstances. In extreme poverty and lack, sinful hearts grumble and complain against God. We see that in the story of the Israelites wandering in the desert, complaining against God, putting God to the test. In Numbers, God says to the Israelites that ten times they tested him. Exodus 17, 7 describes, defines for us what it means to put God to the test. It says, Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That question, that unbelieving, doubting question is what it means to put God to the test. To find yourself in any circumstance and say, God's not in this. God has abandoned me. God does not love me. God is not mindful of me. God is not good to me. That thought, provoked oftentimes by suffering and hardship and poverty and lack, that thought is a sinful response to those circumstances. But great abundance can also be a temptation to sinful hearts to boast and forget God. Listen to the warning that Paul gives, or uh, Moses gives in Deuteronomy 8 before the people of Israel cross the river into the promised land. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. You you see that material things are not sinful in themselves. God made this world and God means for his people to understand how to live rightly in this world full of good things that God has made. But here's the danger. Verse 14 When that happens and all all that you have is multiplied, then your heart may be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. That's the temptation when you abound. But what this means is no situation ever neither want nor wealth, is ever an excuse for sin. No circumstance ever exempts you from your obligation to love God and love people. Think about how often do do you and I use as excuses for our sin a certain set of circumstances. I'm, I'm tired, I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm bored. I mean, we even have a word for this. People say, I'm hangry. Which is just a way of saying, I'm sinning while I'm hungry. We can't blame our circumstances. Sin comes out of our heart's response to our circumstances. Circumstances just expose what's inside of our hearts. There's, there's good news here. and I want to make an observation. I want to come back to that qualifier that Paul 
makes when he begins to give thanks. And, and then he says, I, I rejoice that finally, at last, you revived your concern for me, which sounds like he's saying, what took you so long? I, I think there's an important observation here for us. This means that your ambition for the gospel does not depend on your circumstances. Paul rejoices, verse 10, that now at length the Philippian church had renewed their concern for Paul. But he's quick to clarify. He understands it's not that there was ever a time when they weren't concerned for him. He, He acknowledges that it wasn't lack of love or affection or gospel partnership or commitment or devotion that kept them from supporting him. It was lack of opportunity. They lacked the opportunity to demonstrate the fullness of their participation and partnership with him in the gospel. That's encouraging when we realize whatever our circumstances are, we can be cultivating gospel ambitions. And there, there will be providential limitations in your life whether those are physical or financial or relational. But those limitations don't have to limit your ambition for the gospel, your, your love for the mission of Christ on earth. My family, Barbara and I can relate to that. The health of our boys has often felt like a limitation. When we, there, there's so much more we would love to do, having people over for meals and showing hospitality and going out with people, and we just so often feel limited by our situation. But this reminds me, I can't ever use my circumstances as an excuse for my heart growing passive or dull or disinterested. Whatever circumstances I find myself in, I can be cultivating through prayer, through God's word, an earnest desire for the gospel. So, When Paul says, I can do all things, he recognizes that God purposefully provides with little or with much. Why? What what can we learn from this about how to live in God's material world as embodied souls with physical needs? What is God's purpose? How does God wield poverty and abundance for our good. Well, look at Deuteronomy 8 again. Moses is addressing the Israelites. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 6. Moses says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. He let you hunger. And he fed you with manna. He let you hunger and he fed you so that he might make you know that he might teach you, that he might inform you, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what God means for us to learn about living in this world. Life is about more than food and clothing. It's about more than material possessions. In addition to those things, what we need most, what we need most essentially, most fundamentally, is every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses goes on, verse 4, Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then, in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. 
So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Food and clothing, sickness and health, abundance and need, these are all tools in God's hands, which he wields with skill to sculpt you into the very likeness of Christ in order to fill the earth with his glorious image. He uses these things to humble you and to test you and to expose your heart and to teach you and to discipline you so that you might know God and walk in his ways. So where does God have you right now? The grace that God is offering you in Christ through his word this morning means that you can do all things. You can honor Christ in your singleness right now. You can honor Christ in your marriage, whether you're thrilled with the state of your marriage or discontent with your marriage. You can endure to the glory of Christ and the good of your spouse. You can honor Christ as you parent the children that God has given you. Children that seem sweet and joyful and children who seem stubborn and strong-willed. You can honor Christ in that and you can honor Christ in miscarriage and barrenness and loss You can honor Christ in your youth and in your old age. You can honor Christ in your vocation and your employment and in your unemployment and your job hunting and your interviewing. You can honor Christ with your healthy body and you can honor Christ with your weak and sick and suffering body. That's something we're trying to teach our son Caleb how to do. He is a sufferer. He has a weak body. God made him and knit him together fearfully and wonderfully in his mother's womb. And he is a sufferer. And we want to help him learn how to live with that suffering body to the glory of Christ. So, if you're thinking, well, that sounds great. I'd love to be able to endure the situations that I'm in right now. But how? How do I do that? What does that look like? Here's the last part of our sentence. You can learn to live with invincible joy in every situation by relying on the very power of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul has a source of strength outside of himself. He's not like the Stoics who sought to be self-sufficient. He grabs their word, self-sufficiency, and he says, I have strength through Christ. He's talking about Christ. Him is Christ. Look at 1 Timothy 1.12 where Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength. Who's that? Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knows he has no power to do anything on his own. He says here, I can do all things, but look what he says in 2 Corinthians 1.8-9. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Burdened beyond our strength. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. How can that be? Well, he goes on, 2 Corinthians 1.9-10. and 10, That was to make us rely, look at this, Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is Philippians 2.12 on display in Paul's life. God works in, Paul works out. Unlike those Stoics who aim for total independence and self-sufficiency, Paul grabbed their words, subjugated it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and aimed to rejoice in everything through Christ. Because Paul, in the end, is not the master example. Jesus is. Jesus is the example of how to be brought low and how to abound, how to face hunger and need, plenty and abundance. When Paul says, I know how to be brought low, he uses the same word he used back in Philippians 2.8, speaking of Jesus' humility. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. He was brought low by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knows how to be brought low, and he did so when he took on human form and died the death that we deserve to die. For our sins. Jesus knows how to abound. Philippians 2 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus knows how to face hunger and need. We see that in his temptation in the wilderness. Matthew 4 recounts Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written. Notice what he quotes. Deuteronomy 8. Jesus knew how to live in God's created world. Jesus knew what physical life was all about. Jesus knew that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knew how to face hunger and need, and Jesus knows how to face plenty and abundance. Satan tempted Jesus, Matthew 4, 8 through 10, The devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The temptation here was not to have kingdoms and to have glory. Jesus has a kingdom and all the kingdoms of earth will be subjected to him. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has glory. He is glorious. He is filling the earth with the display of his glory. The temptation here was to worship someone other than God, which Jesus will not ever do. The good news for you And for me is that the very strength of Jesus, by which he endured 40 days without food, by which he became obedient to death on a cross, that very strength is available to you. Jesus himself will strengthen you with his own power, not so that you don't have to obey God, but so that you too can glorify God and love people in absolutely any circumstance. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. On your own, there will be circumstances that you will feel like Paul, burdened beyond your own strength. But in Christ and through Christ and by Christ, you can do all things. And so in closing, I just want to give you, point you back to that very practical 
tool. Greg preached on this a, a few weeks ago. Uh, the acronym APTAT, which comes from John Piper, that, that is such a helpful, practical tool. I know Greg uses that. I use this personally. Um, I would say most days at some point I'm consciously thinking through and praying through this acronym. This is a way that I seek to actually face real life situations through the very real power and strength of Jesus Christ. And so I want to remind you of this, commend this to you again, encourage you memorize this and and use this as a way to depend on Christ for strength in all of life. Aptat, that, that A stands for admit, admit your weakness to God. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9 is a, is a parallel passage that sheds light on Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And in that section, Paul writes, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, talking about the thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, power, strength, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What does Paul do in order for the power of Christ to rest upon him? He boasts about his weaknesses. We start by admitting to God that we are weak, that we are burdened beyond our own strength. And that is a crucial part of experiencing the very power of Christ resting upon us. P, pray, pray for grace, pray for divine help, pray for the power of Christ. My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace and power, God's grace is his active power asserted toward us. So pray, ask him for that. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious, but by prayer, let your requests be made known to God. Pray, ask for help. T is trust. Trust a specific promise. Galatians 2.20 is so enlightening here where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live, Christ lives in me. The life I live... Wait a minute, what, what does he mean there? Does he live or does he not live? He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. That's how Paul does all things through Christ. He does it by faith in the Son of God. Faith means trusting Christ, clinging to Christ, holding on to all that he is and all that he promises to be and do for us. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 1, 9 through 10, when he was burdened beyond his own strength, what was that for? To make him rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. To rely on God is to trust him. So when I get to this step in this acronym, I, I try to force myself to think of, identify a, a specific promise, a chapter and a verse that I can cling to in that moment to consciously trust God to be and do all that he promises for me. The next A is act. Do something. You just put your hand to the task that is before you. Having admitted your weakness, prayed for help, trusting in a promise, then you just do whatever it is. Philippians 2.12, God works in you, you work it out. Paul says, I can do all things. You, you face the plenty or the hunger. You, you face the abundance or the need. You face what is before you, 
trusting in Christ, trusting that God will empower you with all that you need. And when he does, then it's appropriate for us. Last T, thank. For us to thank God. That's the whole goal of all of this. 2 Corinthians 1.11 says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf. When God lets his power rest upon us in our weakness, it is so that many will give thanks. And I, I meant to say this earlier, but I think it's important to clarify that when we talk about invincible joy, as we've talked about throughout this series, we're not talking about constant, ecstatic happiness, laughing all the time. I mean, Paul's talking about suffering, hunger, hardship, and contentment in the midst of that. Maybe the most helpful way I know how to think about how it's possible to feel simultaneously uh, immense pain and contentment is when I think about the, the moment that my son Isaac died. When I arrived at the scene, Barbara was in the van with Isaac, holding his dead body, and we, we just wailed. We wept. Like, like we've never wept before. And, and I began to say, I was such a bad dad. I, I had these thoughts of regret, all the things I wish I had done more of, or things I, had, I wished I had done better. And, and Barbara just said to me, in that moment as we were weeping together, she said, stop. We're not going to do that. We're not going to blame each other. We're not going to let this divide us. We're going to continue loving each other faithfully. And so in that moment of pain and grief over the loss of our son, the covenant love, the covenant faithfulness, the covenant contentment between us as husband and wife was invincible, unshakable. And it has, by God's grace, remained that way because that's what a covenant is. Is And so what Paul is talking about here, this is covenant language. In our marriage ceremonies, we have the husband and the wife make a vow like this, using those extremes to promise their faithfulness and their love in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty, in all things to love each other and be faithful because... The covenant love of a husband and wife is not dependent on the circumstances in which they find themselves. So life may be hard, it may be unpleasant, but their love for one another is invincible. And marriage is just a shadow of the reality of Christ and the church, which is why it's possible for us to actually feel real gut-wrenching pain in our circumstances and yet have this invincible covenant contentment with Christ. Our love for Christ, our hope in Christ is unshaken through it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, born of a woman, born 
in human flesh to live in this world that you made, this world plunged into death and destruction by our sin. That you gave your son to die for us so that we might be reconciled to you, restored into right relationship with you, brought back into covenant relationship with you so that we might enjoy your invincible faithfulness to us, your commitment to do good to us all the days of our lives, that we might know you and trust you and enjoy you forever. I pray that you would sustain your people, whatever circumstances the people of Emmaus Road Church find themselves in right now. May your grace abound to them. May the very power and strength of Christ rest upon them so that they would continue to honor and glorify you and radically love and serve those around them in any and every situation. In Jesus' name, amen.